What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live, and I'm joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. Nicole, how are you doing? Pretty good, Tom. How are you? I'm good. So we are recording this just hours after the Celtics kind of beat down the Toronto Raptors uh, in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals. Final score was Celtics 112, Raptors 94. So let's do some instant reactions. Nicole, what were some of the biggest takeaways for you from this game? It kind of was really similar to their seeding game. Siakam really never established himself. The Celtics' defense was really overpowering off the bat or suffocating off the bat. The Raptors' point total, I think through three quarters of the seeding game, they had scored 57 points. And then through three quarters, let me see, Gino time is not known for its math, but (laughs) it was, I think, like 60-something. Like, it was just very evident that the Raptors' offense couldn't get going. But similar to the seeding game, the Raptors also couldn't make shots. So it was hard to tell whether it was, okay, the Celtics' defense is like, I think it's definitely a combination of both, but... Because the Raptors couldn't make shots, I feel like that sort of makes you think like, okay, well, this can't happen again. I'm willing to go, I'm willing to get a little bit spicier than you are, I think. I mean, I think that the Celtics kind of have some things figured out about the Raptors and like they've figured out how to, you know, get back in transition. They figured out how to like really slow the Raptors down. They've, you know, they've figured out how to make the Raptors get into the half court offense that they really struggle with. Toronto's, I mean, you could say they were cold. Like, yeah, I mean, they were to an extent, but I think so much of what was happening was that they really struggle because they don't have any real shot makers. Like, they don't have anybody who's just like, I'm going to go get you a bucket guy. Like, I think of somebody like Terrence Ross. You know, he he would make a big difference on this team because he can just go get a bucket sometimes. You just kind of need that guy. This was always my concern with Toronto, and one of the reasons why I thought the Celtics had, you know, at least something of a leg up in this series even like a lot of Toronto's made baskets, the Celtics were back in transition contesting. Like I, I noticed on one of, like it was like a Fred Van Vliet, like pull up three in transition. And even on that one, like the Celtics were back. He just like pulled up, he walked into the three because the Celtics were kind of walling off the paint. Even in those scenarios, the Celtics were back and were able to have somebody with a hand up. And I think that really matters. I, I think the fact that they were sprinting back and that they were preventing Toronto from getting all the way to the rim. And, you know, every time, you know, the Celtics missed or the Celtics like looked like they were going to complain about something, you could see Brad Stevens on the sideline just yelling at them to get back, get back, get back. I think that's going to be an emphasis. I mean, I, I assume, I mean, Nick Nurse is coach of the year and they've got a lot of really good players. So I assume that they will make like adjustments, but I'll be curious to see how much, how much they can do. Cause the side, like I said, I think the Celtics have some stuff, not everything, but some stuff figured out against Toronto. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it still is that the Raptors just couldn't get shots to fall. They were 25% from three. At one point, like after falling behind 39-23 to end the first quarter, they had got it to 39-30 and they had like multiple chances to bring that closer. And like at the beginning of the second quarter, I was like, why isn't Brad calling a timeout? Like it looked like the Raptors were going on this run. He he held on to it and it didn't end up mattering because the Raptors couldn't get a shot to fall. He finally called the timeout after the Raptors missed back-to-back threes. They got an offensive rebound and missed their second one. And Brad was like, "All right, that's enough." But I, I think the Celt- or I think the Raptors had some good looks from three. They just couldn't get the shot to fall. So I still think a lot of the result is due to the Raptors' shot making, and I think part of that was them just being cold, not necessarily the Celtics' defense. We'll see. Siakam also got in early foul trouble, so he got two early fouls. He got hey, he got in early foul trouble because the Celtics were bothering him. 
even after Nick Nurse pulled the starters, he kept Siakam in, I think, to try and get him into a rhythm, which he still didn't, which no. is unfortunate. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. I, I think, like, obviously playoffs are all about the adjustments. They literally will get them again in two days. And, I mean, Nick Nurse, like he says, coach of the year. I agree with you that the Celtics, like, yeah, have figured some stuff out. But, like, also to start the second quarter – when the Raptors switched to that zone, like the Celtics scored three points in the first five minutes. And so like, I just think that like, it's going to be a tougher series than I think this game and the seeding game, like the blowouts have indicated. And I mean, I will say, I will say about the zone, like teams keep trying like the zone against the Celtics and it keeps bothering them for like a couple minutes in a quarter. And then they just kind of figure it out. Like the only team that has done like a really successful zone against Boston that is like held was Miami. So a few things that I wanted to get into here. I, I thought it was really interesting that Toronto's strategy against Tatum was basically just to try to like take him out of it and kind of see what the Celtics could do otherwise. I think it was Lowry early on. They they bothered him with like smaller guys. They clearly were focused on trying to slow him down. And I, and I looked this up because I, I was curious. It's not a bad strategy. When Jason Tatum scores 21 points or fewer and he plays 30 or more minutes in a game, so like basically discounting the games where he sits the fourth quarter because they were already up by a million. The Celtics were 9-14 and 14 this year. They need Jason Tatum to score and to score in volume. Jason Tatum did not score in volume. He was like, you know, he was fine. 9 for 18 is good. Four turnovers isn't. The Celtics still won comfortably. I, I uh, That speaks to the fact that Boston, even without Gordon Hayward, I think, I mean, it also speaks to the fact that Marcus Smart went 5 for 9 from 3. But <laughs> the Celtics do have other options, and they do have other ways to create offense, even when, you know, their best scorer isn't having a bad night, but is having a more quiet night. Like, we still haven't said, like, man, the Celtics really miss Gordon Hayward. And you would think that this is a series where we would say that. So props to them. I mean, Brad just emphasized after the game that it's by committee. No one individual can really fill in for him, but sort of the mix of smart in the lineup and then Wanamaker and Shemi off the bench, you sort of try and piece together all of Gordon's contributions. Yeah, Marcus Smart went five for nine from three, all corner threes. Props to him. We'll see if that uh I guess I don't expect him to shoot five for nine from three consistently, but just the fact that he is sort of in more of an offensive rhythm. I think is a good sign. And I think he was struggling to find that offensive rhythm in the Philly series and sort of early on. So obviously if that holds, that's a promising development. One thing to keep an eye on with that, I did see one, somebody who clearly follows the Raptors very closely, basically noted that like the Raptors do give up a decent amount of corner threes. Like that's like a feature of their offense. It's one of the ways that teams can beat you. So, I mean, again, that might be something uh, to to keep an eye on. What's that? You mean a feature of their defense? Yeah, sorry. A feature of their defense is that they give opponents plenty of looks at, like, corner threes, so. I think the Raptors also seemed pretty upset at the officiating. Nick Nurse got a technical. The Raptors had 11 fouls called against them in the first quarter. They, like, got into the bonus, I think, with five minutes left to go. Like, they seemed pretty frustrated after a lot of the calls, so. Uh I thought it was interesting that they seemed frustrated. A lot was being called on the perimeter and not as much was being called in the paint. I I just thought that was an interesting thing to be upset about because, like, I feel like that benefits them quite a bit because, like, they're so aggressive, you know, swiping and, you know, like, going for that stuff. And that's a good, you know, that's good defense. Like, you should be aggressive. You should be, you know, bodying people up and swiping. Um, Well, no, doesn't that – because they swipe a lot on the perimeter. I guess. But, I mean, I, I also think that it seems like they load up in the paint, too. Either way, they were upset. So I I think that maybe had something to do with it, too. 
my, I guess my second biggest takeaway is that we saw no Ennis Cantor and Robert Williams got a hefty chunk of time. Defensively, he definitely had some miscues. He checked into the game and then Ibaka hit back-to-back threes. There was another one where OG and Anobi made a move on Smart, like got past Smart, and then nobody was there to help, and he just goes up for the dunk. I don't think that one was Rob's fault, actually, because if you watch where Rob was, he was connected to Marc Gasol on the perimeter. And not that Marc Gasol is like a Kyle Korver out there, but he is he can shoot. Okay. So I don't think that one was actually Rob's fault. I, I actually, it's funny to say this. Like, I think it was either, it was either the guy who was supposed to rotate from the other corner or it was or Smart's fault. It might have been Marcus Smart's fault. I don't know. I guess I just trust it's Marcus. It's really Smart. weird to give Robert Williams the benefit of the doubt over Marcus freaking Smart, but I, somebody made a mistake there and I, I don't think it was Rob. I was going to say, I guess I just trust Marcus so much that when I saw him like pointing to Rob, I was like, oh, this is Rob's fault, but maybe it was Marcus. Could not possibly be more fair on your end. I uh, I just don't know for sure that that was actually the case this time. And there were a few other instances where I was just like, okay, yes. this was Rob's fault. But... 100%. He, he had a couple of swipes. He did. Uh, he, he made some mistakes. Offensively, though, it was a typical Rob game, I guess. Like he yeah. Five for five. It's funny how Rob can have a positive impact on the game while doing like almost nothing technically right. <laughs> like, like he like doesn't, he's not usually in the right place. Like he, more so than usual, you know, he does still swipe some less than before. He does still like jump some less than before. Like, he just kind of comes in and does some stuff and like it's usually positive. He's one of the more bizarre players I've ever, I've ever watched. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't know why they look better with him on the floor, but they just often do. Um, and like, I don't get it from a schematic standpoint. Brad likes to talk about the vertical spacing that he brings. Um, I think that, I think that really matters. Like if Rob has a relatively unimpeded path to the basket, you can pretty much throw it anywhere and, and you'll probably get two points cause he can go get it. But. I think there's a lot of reason to be excited if Rob can earn the starting center position in the next like two years, hopefully. Yeah. There is something to that, in my opinion. That's a really exciting offense for the Celtics, given their other pieces. A hundred percent. And it would make Danny Ainge like look even smarter for not pursuing Clint Capella this season at the trade deadline. But yeah, no, I mean, I think this is what it will be for the rest of the series moving forward is we'll be seeing a lot more Rob and Ennis Cantor. I wouldn't be surprised if Cantor does not even see the floor. My last takeaway is just that I really agree with Brad's postgame comment is we just made timely baskets and we were able I thought that was really insightful. Yeah. Separation that way. It was more of a timely thing than how good we were on offense. And I think that's so true. Like even heading into halftime, the Raptors were down 12 with a chance for a two for one. And instead Tatum had a huge steal on a dunk and then Kemba hits a three at the buzzer and they're leading by 17. And it could have been single digits. And single digits to start the half, you just never know what's going to happen. Like That's very erasable. 17 at the half, that's way more insurmountable. That's a 10-point swing. The Raptors kept bringing it back at least within like nine. And they never got to like six or five because the Celtics always made like a three, some sort of timely bucket. So I, I really agreed with that observation by Brad. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to end the third quarter, it's like a 13-point game, and they drop a really nice play to get, I think it was Tatum against Van Vliet, and Tatum hits a tough shot, the buzzer of that one, too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was really smart. I mean, I think this game was was won on the defensive end almost entirely. A couple small things. I felt like Jalen attempted, like, four or five floaters tonight. I don't remember him taking, like, a ton of floaters. He, I think he only made, like, one or two. 
Uh, but it was interesting. Everybody it was interesting... on the Celtics wants to make a floater now. It's intriguing for both him and Tatum. Like, if those guys are hitting floaters, like, they're hard to stop because they can do everything else, too. Last two things I wanted to touch on here are both broadcast-related. One, they kept bringing up the fact that there was no juice from Jurassic Park. And I just don't understand that because Jurassic Park is outside anyway. I don't understand constantly referencing Jurassic Park when they're all outside watching from outside anyway. I have no comment. Okay, maybe it's a vibe thing. All right. Um, and then the other thing, people need to give credit to the right person. The uh, Time Lord nickname came from Riffsman and Brian Schroeder, otherwise known as Cosmos, on Twitter, not from anybody else. So when you're when you're talking about Time Lord, as Doris Burke and Dave Pash did on the broadcast today, make sure that you reference the right people. It's uh, our good pal Riffsman and Brian Schroeder at Cosmos on Twitter. Yeah, not to be like a Debbie Downer, like it's great that they brought it up and stuff, but they still got the story wrong. I feel like people are yeah. missing the fact that it's uh, anti-media. Yeah. Which that's... <laughs> I think that's hard for the media to accept that that's what sort of sparked the nickname, but they're missing yeah. the last key element. And yes. it's, it's a real important element. Exactly. Like, yes, Rob did all that stuff. Yes, he slept in. Yes, he missed his press conference. Yes, he missed practice. Yes, he's missed flights. But like, they were making fun of the media treating that as a big deal. It's not exactly. like they were just like, oh, like, look at this new rookie that keeps forgetting to come to stuff. So that's that's the one key element. Like, I'm glad that Doris is bringing it up, and I'm glad that she, like, is aware that that's his nickname, but... It is very funny to hear Doris Burke talking about Time Lord on a, <laughs> on a national playoff broadcast. But, yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing we should know, basketball-wise, Kemba did look to tweak his knee, at one point, I forget which quarter that happened. He and Siakam, who was he, who's driving to the... Well, so it looks like, if I recall correctly, it looked like Kemba took like an elbow, like an inadvertent elbow or shoulder from Siakam to the face. And then he sort of like looked like he maybe twisted his knee a little bit. We should have this right, so apologies. But I think he like landed and then it twisted a little bit. There was some contact there. But anyway, he like was sort of not hobbling, but definitely appeared to be effective in the he limped a little bit, yeah. in the moments after. And then he stayed in the game though. Um it was right before halftime. So then they did have that break and he probably got some sort of treatment during uh the break. And then after the game he told Gary Washburn that it was just pain in the moment, but he tweaked it. Everything's all good though. You just never know. Especially with Kemba, who I think would rather like like, like, if there was, like, an appendage that he could lose, but he could still keep playing basketball, I think he would do that rather than have to keep sitting out about his knee. Well, the last thing he's going to do is tell a reporter that something's up with his knee, and then Brad's going <laughs> to see that and be like, you're back on your minutes restriction. <laughs> so yeah. he stayed in the game, obviously, but he didn't. And maybe it was just an opportunity thing. The Celtics were already up. But, like, he didn't really seem to have, like, there wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, he's good. Like, you know what I mean in terms of, like, yeah. his burst and stuff. So, That'll be just something to watch in game two. And my last note is um, during the post-game press conference for Jason Tatum, somebody, a reporter brought up the fact that the Celtics swept and then blew out the Bucks last year, but then the Bucks proceeded to win four straight games and eliminate the Celtics. And they were like, why are you confident that that won't happen this year? And Tatum was like, 
man, we just won a game and you had to bring up last year. And I just appreciated that because, like, the correlation is just not there. Like, these teams are so different. The circumstances are so different. The opponents are different. Like, it's just not two comparable situations. If you want to note just, like, situationally, yeah, the Celtics shouldn't be comfortable. That's fine. Why are you confident that this year is going to be different? Oh, because literally everything is different. The <laughs> opponent's different. The Kyrie's gone. Al Horford's gone. Kemba Walker's here. I don't know if you noticed. Kemba Walker's here. Jalen Brown starts now. Also, we're playing the Toronto Raptors, not the Milwaukee Bucks. Like, there's just like, yeah, it's, I'm confident it'll be different because it's different. I think that I think that goes the other way too, because like I, I noticed that some people were saying like, oh, like you know, the Raptors they always lose game one. And it's like, well, again, this is like a completely different Raptors team. Like, it's just different. If you want to just say, like, you never know what could happen, I totally agree with that take, and that's fine. But a team that lost or won game one can also win or lose game two, three, four, five, and so on. So (laughs) to uh, to, to quote the last Celtic champion, anything is possible. (laughs) Anything else that you wanted to touch on here before we call? I mean, this was this was like a it's a weird game. Obviously, it's like super interesting and impactful that the Celtics won it so comfortably. But again, it's a game one. I, like, I, I just don't, I just don't have that much yet to take away from this series other than kind of the stuff we touched on. So I guess I'll end by noting, I'll be the, the super Debbie Downer. Not a whole lot of talk about the social justice stuff today as basketball resumes, which was kind of the concern. I feel like, I mean, the broadcast talked about it a lot. We get done with that game. Nobody's going to be writing about it. Nobody asked anything about it really in the, in the post game pressers. Everything doesn't have to be about that. If the players don't want it to be like, that's fine. But if, if the concern was that basketball was going to distract from that, I would say that the evidence so far suggests that that is possible. So the two players we got immediately following the meetings and sort of the resumption of the season were Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So we didn't hear from Marcus Smart, but then after this game, we got Marcus Smart. And nobody asked Marcus Smart about the past 72 hours in that regard. And if sort of they just swapped Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart, I'm sure everyone would have asked Marcus those questions yesterday, and then today Tatum would have gotten by. And it's like, don't we care about Marcus's? Don't we want to hear from Marcus about what his thoughts were on the- He's had a lot to say. The, yeah, exactly. Or just like most members of the roster, I feel like we would be curious in hearing what they have to say. But it's like, it just shows how news cycle we are driven. And like, I mean, both of us are culprits in that because oh, yeah. neither of us asked Marcus about it. So it's like- I had my mic plugged in. I could have done it. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that proves how news cycle driven we are because, okay, that day the stories were about the meetings and the strike and coming back. So those are the types of questions we're asking. Today it's about the game. So those are the types of questions we're asking. And it's like that's, I think, what Kyrie was trying to say probably. And I think that's what a lot of players have brought up in that, like, if we we don't talk about it, it doesn't get covered. So yeah, I, I did notice that ESPN – I think in every cut that I saw, they did tack on one question about social justice. But yeah, and I mean, they have vote on the Jumbotron or whatever that would be called. That whole thing is another issue that we're not going to get into on this podcast right now. And like even the arena getting converted into polling places like TD Garden won the Celtics don't own the arena. And despite that, Jalen Brown was like, I still would like to see it happen. The deadline to become a polling place for the primaries, which are being held on Tuesday also, yep. so that would be a really quick turnaround, was over two weeks ago. And then in order to be a polling place for the general election, you have to be a polling place for the primary. So TD Garden will not meet that criteria. 
which means if the NBA or the Celtics really want TD Garden to be a polling center, if they really want to make that happen, they're going to have to get involved. Wick Grossback is going to have to make some phone calls. We'll see if that actually happens. But on top of that, Jason Tatum noted, okay, the polling center is open. How are people going to get there? We can have buses from different neighborhoods to bring people in. Arenas aren't always located in the most convenient places. So we're going down a rabbit hole now, but it's just like, I don't know. It is disappointing to see the conversation shift so quickly. We'll, we'll see how that develops. I mean, again, it, it might just, I mean, maybe the players are sick of, of talking about it too for like a day. Like that would be fine. Like they've, they've had a really emotional few days. You know, maybe it's good for them to get back to basketball. Like I'm, you know, one, one day where it's a little bit quieter on that front is not the end of the world by any means. But I do think that it is noteworthy to just kind of point out that like maybe some of these concerns that, you know, players like Kyrie were raising were valid. So. All right, guys, we will leave it there. Thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you uh, for everybody who's left us a rating and a review. We appreciate all of you, and we will talk to you after game two.